Welcome to the Your Houston Podcast. This is your host, Nicholas Hall. This is your co-host, Mario Castillo. How are you doing, Mario? I'm doing great today. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm really excited about our topic today. It's COVID-19. Uh, and we're very fortunate to have Dr. Fasal Masood here with us today. How are you doing, doctor? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yes, we are absolutely excited. We have uh, Dr. Fasal Masood, the Director of Critical Care for Houston Methodist Hospital. Uh, and just to give an introduction, uh, he also serves as the Vice Chair for Quality and Patient Safety and the Medical Director for the Cardiovascular Intensive Care Unit at Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center, and also serves as a Professor of Clinical Anesthesiology at the Cornell Medical College and professor of anesthesiology at the Houston Methodist Academic Institute. Um, and then beyond that, he's uh, received many awards to include the Presidential Gold Medal, uh, the Golden Apple Award for Excellence in Teaching four times, uh, and the prestigious Fulbright and Jarowski Faculty Excellent Award in Educational Leadership. We're very excited to have you on today. Thank you for Thank being you with so us, much. Doctor. Uh, I will have Mario. Next time I'll have you introduce me to my wife. I mean, maybe I'll get a better PR. <laughs> he does a very good introduction. Uh, so we are very fortunate to have you with us today, doctor. Uh, so we format of the show. We generally ask some questions to kind of break the ice. So I'll ask you the first question. What is your morning routine? Well, I wake up around uh, 4.30 to 5 in the morning. Uh, because uh, typically I'm inside the hospital around six in the morning. So um, I, as I mentioned, that I'm the medical director for critical care for the hospital and not only the main hospital, but all the system hospital. So I get, uh, you know, deal with what's been happening overnight. And before I start my work, I start dealing with issues from the night and then kind of take starting care of patients uh, in the morning. And depending on the day, you know, I may be busy till 7, 7.30, and then I might go home. Um, and uh, and uh, because, uh, you know, I oversee all the hospitals, so my work does not finish when I go home. It just means that I'm not physically in the hospital. The work goes on. Well, thank you for everything that you do. Uh, have you, has your morning routine changed at all? prior, you know, dealing with COVID, was it different prior to COVID? And have you kind of made adjustments with, with the developments? So uh, let's put it this way. I've not really taken a day off in the last four or five months because COVID is right now all consuming uh, since March, I would say. Uh, it started in February. So what there is uh, was a lot more sense of predictability and organizing things, but COVID has added a whole new layer of complexity and delivery of care, especially that we had gotten a lot better control overall in May and things were all seems like that they will be studying out. But since the Memorial Day, uh, things have kind uh, of evolved very, very fast. And we are in a very different position now than in uh, March and April. So it is really a full-time thing because the number of cases, as you've seen, uh, publicly reported, have uh, gone very high. Dr. Masood, you just mentioned the number of cases. Uh, the county is currently under a, a mask order in businesses and 
we've heard about the number of uh, ICU patients and and the capacity that's nearing uh, capacity or, or or surpassing it. Uh, what are you seeing in the ICU today? Can you walk us through what uh, what you're experiencing and what your staff is experiencing in, in the hospitals today? So, uh, you know, clearly the number of cases have increased all over the city and number of cases being uh, admitted to the hospital, not only the Texas Medical Center, have increased. Now, I want to put a word of caution in the ICU capacity, and I think I lived through that and I had to talk at multiple public forum and media outlets regarding that also. Typically, you know, in large medical complex like us, we get patients not only from Houston, from outside Houston, Texas, different parts of the country, and even outside the country. With that being said, our ICU capacity on the average runs around 85, 90% on the average anyway. So I think again, when people hear 90% capacity, that's you know not an uncommon thing. Let me tell you, I was working the whole weekend, last weekend, and we started with about 90%, 95, and by evening we were down to 65. So it fluctuates. Uh, with that being said, clearly uh, there's a limitation to any capacity and it is really dependent on the number of people who are coming to the hospital. If the number keeps an exponential increase, you know, that's a big game changer for any institute deal. The other thing which is different now compared to March and April is, in March and April, everything got shut down. So the only majority of the patients were COVID-related. However, there was a lot of number of patients who could not get their care taken care of because everything was diverted towards COVID. Now, all those patients are coming to us. So we have a challenge not only to deliver care to those COVID patients, but the majority of those patients were non-COVID. So from my and my team's perspective, a patient is a patient. I don't discriminate whether you have a heart attack or a stroke or COVID. My team job is to take care of you. So we don't pick, you know, uh, your patient. We take care of everything. So to me, a patient is equally as important regardless of the disease. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as a patient is a patient. And has anything changed with COVID and how you're, you know, treating PPE? Are you, are you using it more often? Are you taking other precautions? Have there been any other kind of paradigm shifts in the way that you treat patients within the ICU and the ICUV? So absolutely, there have been actually huge changes actually, and the degree of change and the pace of change has tremendously evolved. Uh, so let me give an example. In March and April, uh, you know, uh, there was a challenge with PPE because no institution was prepared for so much consumption. So we have learned a lot since that time. We have, a, I don't, I'm not worried about PPE right now. I'm not worried about the number of beds. You know, we really are more focused on the volume cases. We have, you know, our triage, our processes. We developed so many protocols. We have learned so much more about this disease now in end of June than we ever knew in March and April. We are, we have, Really, in patients which we are managing now in ICUs or floor are different in terms that in March and April, we would be putting those patients on ventilators. We've learned a lot that we don't have to. We can manage them without putting on ventilators. 
we have deployed technologies in terms of virtual ICU in which allows us to manage patients a lot more efficiently and the decreases the time the nurses, the respiratory therapists and physicians have to go back and forth. So we have become much more leaner, much more focused even. Our therapies, whether it is remdesivir, whether it is convalescent plasma or other allow us to better take care of patients, manage them more outside ICU and to get their you know, impact on the life's letter. So our rate of people dying from COVID have literally gone down a lot since March. So it just goes to show that we're able to deliver a better quality care because we've learned a lot. It's not that we were not providing better quality care in March and April. Nobody knew what this was. So what have you learned with how this virus is impacting younger populations? Are you seeing people in their 20s and 30s getting, you know, admitted to the hospital now when they weren't before or vice versa? Or how is this impacting a younger population? So, you know, you're absolutely right. So we are seeing a lot more younger population now in the last three weeks that we ever saw in an earlier part of COVID. Uh, what I would tell you, the still one of the couple of, uh, you know, common denominators is that people who are getting admitted and getting more sick uh, are, I'm sorry, my light went off. Okay. Uh, so are the ones who are obese, who are you know, extremely overweight, who are diabetic, who have got kidney problems or blood pressure problems. So young people are getting infected at a much more high rate, and, you know, but those who get sick uh, have some of these you know, disease along with them. And that is very, very important for people to know. Virus does not discriminate between the old and young, but the chance of getting more sick is if you are diabetic, obese, or hypertension kidney problem. Unfortunately, in Texas, these diseases are more common than any other, than other states. And, and so I've been reading a lot, and as many people are, and would you say that that's because, you know, really COVID-19 is more of an endothelial-related uh, disease? Is that something that we're learning through the research, or is that just kind of buzzwords that are floating around in the media? So what I'll tell you is, and I, I've done this, you know, in multiple ways. Um, you know, I'm battling um, Google MD, WhatsApp MD, and, and actually WHO has coined a term, which is known as the infodemic. Infodemic means there's a lot of information out there, but not all of them is accurate. So uh, the good thing is people have learned a lot. The good thing is that people are educating themselves. I think that's a very good thing. Uh, I would just caution that some of these terms get thrown out that at one point it was that, oh, this is not a lung disease, it's only about blood clots, which is you know, floating around. But I like to educate your audiences that this viral disease has, has affect different organ in a different way. So does it affect the lungs and cause lung injury? Yes. Does it cause more blood clots? Yes. It does that lead to more kidney damage? Yes. So it's not one versus the other. It affects different organs in different ways. So in some patients, there is much more lung impact. In some patients, there are much more blood clots. In some patients, you know, there's a quite a few uh, kidney damage and heart damage also. So we don't put it in one bucket because we like to use a term which is known as multi 
system organ failure. So, but the very common theme is that the lung damage is more than any other organ damage. So that's why these patients get into a lot more with breathing problem ventilator. I hope this helps. Definitely. This is very valuable information. Uh, you know, you talked about rumors and, and things that people hear. There are uh, folks that are contracting COVID, they're recovering, they're still testing positive for the virus. They're not showing any symptoms, you know, for weeks after the fact. Can you talk more about why that's happening or, or what might be causing that? So, yeah, so initially, uh, the first report came from South Korea about two and a half months ago that a lot of people who were recovered and test negative initially, and then, uh, and then they became positive again. So there was a very big fear as to uh, why is it like they get infected again. When they looked at all the biological markers and labs and looked at it, it is really, they were being positive because of the viral elements. So the machines are testing viral element, they were not infected. There's a very big difference between testing positive for people who already had COVID versus being infection. You may, you, your audience may or may not know, right now you and I have at least 1 billion bacteria in our body, okay? We have them, that's part of our natural. So the page people who are testing positive after recovering from COVID is that the machines and the testing is detecting the shells of the virus. It's not that they're infected. I want to be very clear on that. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to understand that. I think I understand it. Yeah. So that means the body is testing remnants of virus. Huh. So the it's test not is not... Your virus is you're infected or that means it will cause you harm. The test is not dis discerning between a, a virus that's live and a virus that's dead. It's just dis it's saying you have... Around, second time around. Wow. Well, it was complicated. I apologize. But I want to, for, 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 your, for your team, I want to reassure them that if they have recovered from COVID, they are, then if they turn positive, it's not that they're getting again. It's more likely the bodies are, are, are still picking up those, uh, those remnants. That is that's fascinating. Um, and so regarding treatment of patients, uh, you know, Methodist has been in the news for pioneering treatments and clinical trials with COVID-19. Are any of these trials showing any promise? Absolutely. So we, we, we were the first one in the nation to start the plasma trial. And I can tell you, we also have published our data. Mayo Clinic has also published data. What plasma is showing that you are recovering much more faster and there is an element that some of these patients who get plasma earlier on have less number of deaths. Also, we were one of the first in the city and the state to have remdesivir, which also showed that it decreases the number of people uh, dying and getting healthy faster. We also have, which you, they got a lot of press about a recovery trial, which talked about steroid use. We were using it already. We have included that. And there are other therapeutic you know, uh, trial medication, we're doing it. We don't use hydroxychloroquine in our, in our patients because data never really showed that it make a big difference. Initially, we did have that in a part of our protocol, but that was a very study limited wise. So in that way, we could maintain and monitor a patient, but it's no more part of our thing wise. So all the therapy that we're doing, 
plus our management of ventilator, plus our putting people on the lot, like I would say, putting them on the, sleeping on the tummy, or turning them, proning, which is known as, all of these things are making a difference because patients get all of those things. And it, it, this combination of these therapies is getting them to get improve and get better. Dr. Masood, can you talk about how you and your colleagues have had to uh, adjust and make changes to protect yourselves and your families uh, from spreading the virus? You know, what precautions are y'all taking and, and how, uh, how are you going about making sure that you're not taking this home or taking this to your loved ones? So actually, you know, uh, I'm glad you're asking this question because everybody talks about how we're managing patients. Not many people talk about how we manage ourselves and our family. You know, when we come to work, we choose it for ourselves. But, you know, our families don't get to choose it. They just, you know, they are uh, that, you know, they don't give us, uh, you know, that they chose this thing. We, we, we choose it and by default they get along with it. So uh, we, I will talk about the physical aspect wise and the psychological impact also. This is not uh, a sprint. This has been a marathon, which I don't see finishing in the near future right now. It does, this, so the physical element is, you know, the PPE, the gown, the glove, uh, the changing of clothes before you go home, uh, washing multiple before you go home, before you end your work in the hospital. So my colleagues, whether it's a physicians, nurses, do a lot of these things. But the one other aspect is the psychological elements. You have to understand that this takes a big stress on all of us because especially from the beginning, we had to extend the level of care. Our loved one were worried. We had to not only take care of ourselves, but our loved one. The second element is that, you know, patients' family can't be in the ICUs. So by default, we have become the extended families of patients. We are the link between the patient and their families. And we have to do a lot more, especially my nurses. My really, I like to put a hats off to all the nursing staff who really taken a huge job with that. And we're connecting patient and their family with technology like virtual ICU, you know, with our Skype phones and everything. So they get to see, you know, you have to remember, we all love to hug and share. We can't do that. That all adds up to a challenge and stress. Dr. Masood, so I, I was reading about the Provider Burnout and Fatigue journal entry that I believe that you were co-authored and was recently published or is about to be published. Uh, what I found, it's published. I found a very interesting, uh, you know, we talked about the occupa occupational hazards, but really about these process inefficiencies. And I think you touched on the telemedicine and, and these other technologies that we're implementing what have you found to be the most challenging for providers and their staff to adjust to? Um, I think the speed of change. So, so just constantly having to make adjustments and ad lib and, you know, new normals are increasingly being defined by the developments that happen daily. Uh, so as we were talking that I don't use the word normal anymore. <laughs> so... Uh, you're absolutely right. It is that we have had to adapt very fast to so many things. And uh, the technology which we would have imagined to roll out in one year or two years, we had to do that in a couple of weeks. 
the new protocols, the new guidelines, the new processes, and the new kind of patient, learning the disease. I think the speed of change and the amount of change has been quite a bit for anybody to handle. However, what I can tell you is, especially from critical care side, we were trained all of our life for some of these things. This is an event of my lifetime and most of the people our lifetime. You know, so I, I can tell you that, he, that Houstonian and Texans should be proud that, you know, the teams which are working on the ground, no matter most of the hospitals and I'm including us, my nurses, the respiratory therapists, they've done an unbelievable job to keeping you all safe and getting you through this thing. It has taken a toll. That's why when we talk in different forums that help us help you, when we talk about wearing masks and social distancing, we're really talking about you uh, to help us because we are here to serve you. We'll do our best, but there's capacity to anything, limitations. So on that note, is that if, if folks who are listening wanted to help doctors and nurses, is that the best way? Have them wear masks and socially distance uh, as they interact with folks? Or is there other ways that they could help contribute or just say thanks? I think, you know, uh, first of all, what you like to focus on behavior change, that this is an equal opportunity killer. Okay. Some of the data we've seen is that this, uh, you know, the number of cases are, are do get impacted by zip codes in which the population is more dense. And some of them, if they are, uh, have social or healthcare disparities, all of those things are playing on. For the lay public, I'll tell you, if you all are able to do the mask, if your job allows you to work from home, you know, if you try to make every effort of social distancing, you are helping us and yourself both. The, when you wear a mask, you're not protecting yourself alone, but you're protecting others. We have to think like a community. We have to, freedom gives us a choice, and I like to cherish our own freedom, but the freedom does not give you a choice to harm others. So I think we have ownership, and we did it. You know, the key thing is we did it greatly in May. So I really would encourage people to do that. It is all possible. So that's one thing I would encourage do that. The second way is if you had COVID and you recovered, donate your plasma. You can do that. You know, all of this. And there are good projects. And the other thing is, uh, I mean, uh, I think we as a city and a state have shown great leadership in so many ways. We can get back again. Because my second concern is in fall and regular flu is all around the corner. And if we don't get a good handle now, we will be in a very challenging situation in fall. I think that's a good point. And I know you don't have a crystal ball, um, but does it look like things are going to continue to get worse before they get better? Uh, if you had to project what you're seeing on the ground on a daily basis, where do you think we are come September, October? Well, you know, I would have given you a very different answer in, in, in towards May. I would say, you know, we be better shape, fall comes on, we're on. I do believe we're still kind of in this first wave. Uh, and so much of it depends on everybody's behavior. Then nobody can give you projections now because projections are based on on factors which are uh, not necessarily under my control or your control. Projections will change week to week. And those projections are really dependent on social behavior. My message, another would be, 4th of July is 
two, three days from now. It's a long holiday. People like to party, have fun. If we don't be, we are not mindful now in 4th of July holiday, I'm more of more concerned that we'll have another spike. And we're still managing the spikes from the previous holidays and, and all of the stuff. I really would request that please, you gotta be mindful and careful in 4th of July holiday. We can't afford as a city to have a huge spike again. It's very valuable advice from someone who is in the trenches, seeing this day in and day out, uh, and seeing the impacts that this is having on folks across the city. Yeah. I mean it, it, you know, so in that vein, would you advise family members not to travel, uh, to stay, you know, put to self isolate? I mean, where, where is kind of the, the delicate balance between uh, protecting yourself and protecting your family yet still trying to live life um, to its fullest? So uh, it's, there's, I wish there was an easy answer, but I can tell you that in our ICUs, uh, we've had multiple family members of one family. And, you know, it's a difficult thing. You can have a family member, but you have to remember that just because they're family, there's no automatic protection from virus. Or virus doesn't choose one versus the other. You can have a family interaction, but keep the social distance. Keep the mask. It's not about not interacting. It's not about social isolation, okay? It's really about social distancing. You know, I want people to connect more, not less. But we just have to have a physical barrier to some degree. No, I you know you can be six, seven feet from each other. You can still have a good dialogue. You can't just get them uh, high five, but you can do virtual high five with them. You know, in a, well, you can play air guitar. You know, I'm not a guitar, but you can play air guitar. So, you know, you can do a lot of those things. But you have to remember, it's not only about you. It's really about uh, others around you because majority of the patients will not have a symptom. And they will be exposing other people who never had symptoms. And if you we New York Times, you know, spent a couple of days with us and they wrote a story which came out to New York Times Pulitzer Prize winner on Sunday night. And there were stories about our patient. I would encourage you to look at it. They were regular people. They were people who were not necessarily always partying, but they were at the at the grocery stores or checkouts or something. And they got infected by people who never had any signs, symptom. So it's not to be about us only. So do interact with family. Don't do social isolation. Interact, but you have to keep the distance and mask. You can be done. We did it. So I don't want people to isolate because the downside of all of this thing is feeling depressed, lonely, and that has consequence also. I I want to discourage social isolation. I want to you know, encourage social interaction, but with a distance and a mask on. So it's really about the behavioral modifications of, of adjusting and, and wearing a mask and, you know, yeah. not, no human contact. It, it, and You know, families can meet in the park with a distance. You know, you can meet. There's no harm not meeting. You can have family. You, instead of having, you know, maybe last year, if you had 30 family members, maybe do it with 10, you know, so you're safe. So we just have to keep up. Maybe instead of have one big party, have three small parties with a distance. 
So there are ways of doing it. And people are very smart. They can do it. We just want to kind of remind them, if you take it for granted, you know, uh, virus will get you. And when you say the virus will get you, I, I th- and I think, you know, when you reference the New York Times article, which we'll be sure to link down and, and, and below uh, for viewers to, to follow up on. I read that even though patients are asymptomatic, that they're still showing signs of this glass, you know, lung damage, that there's actual still da- damage to their lungs, even though they're asymptomatic. Have you seen this in your practice or your colleagues seen it? So, you know, I, I reviewed that also. And again, that's one small, uh, one month study, which kind of gave an impression that what I can tell you is that patients who require oxygen have a high chance of some degree of lung damage. But it can be, it can recover quite a bit. Uh, patients who don't require oxygen, is lung damage is not at widespread. So I don't want people to... I want people who have been an oxygen to be more mindful to have regular follow-up with the doctors versus people who have not been asymptomatic. You know, that they looked at X-rays and CT scan of asymptomatic patients. And again, we're still learning. So what I will put a word of caution is that we're still learning about the disease. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the things. So I would say that we're still learning, let's say, eight months of, of what we've learned. I would be cautious that, but however, if you are admitted to the hospital, if you require oxygen, you need to have regular, much more follow-up than anybody else. I think that that's just wonderful advice. I can't thank you enough for being on the show and, and sharing your wisdom. And thank you so much for everything you're doing and, and your staff. Uh, Mario, you have any this was very valuable information uh, to share. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your very hectic schedule to uh, talk to us and, and share. Um, you know, we, we were talking about the, not only the physical implications of the virus, but the mental implications. And you uh, talked about social distancing, but not social isolation. And I think that's something that a lot of folks need to take into account as they're being distant and going into a holiday weekend. Um, we want to make sure that we don't continue to spike and, and put our, our region and our healthcare infrastructure in, in jeopardy. So thank you for being here and, and for sharing that. Well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to raise a voice. And I hope we as a city together, uh, you know, we'll make a difference and Houston, we can. We certainly will. Houston strong. That's thank, right. Thank you, Dr. Masood. Have a very wonderful 4th of July weekend. You too. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Your Houston. Everybody have a safe and happy 4th of July holiday. Bye-bye. <laughs>